Welcome to Useful Outsiders, a monthly podcast series brought to you by the Council for International Development. Well, I'm delighted to be joined by the President of Timor-Leste, José Ramos-Sota. So let's start with the recent events. Uh, Timor-Leste has actually coped rather well through COVID. What, is, what has been the secret? How have you managed that? I would say, first, our geography. We surrounded by three neighbours, so we are closest to Australia, which closed down its borders. Bali, Indonesia, closed down its borders. And another entry point to Timor-Leste is Singapore, closed its borders. And of course, we also uh, control more our land border with Indonesia. Geography in this regard helped to curtail uh, the number of visitors to Timor-Leste, which we never had much anyway before, uh, unlike Bali, seven million tourists, particularly from uh, Asia and Middle East, from all over the world, uh, actually. But at the same time, uh, we took our own uh, domestic measures like closing down schools, uh, trying to have uh, online uh, classes as much as we could in view of the limitations of interconnectivity in Timor-Leste that was not terribly successful. We did uh, the first educational campaign about prevention, hand washing, staying uh, avoiding uh, crowded places. And uh, then when the vaccine was available, Australia was incredibly generous and we received more than we needed from Australia, but we also got some from New Zealand, from China, from uh, United States, Portugal. Many countries uh, helped us, but Australia is a most significant one with resources and the closest neighbor. Indonesia couldn't be of much help because obviously they were severely affected by the pandemic themselves. Mm. I mean, it's been hard for developing countries um, in terms of providing a stimulus package, helping people out with covering wages or cash handouts. I think the figure is for for wealthier countries, it's 20% of GDP was spent on a stimulus during COVID to help people. I think for for developing countries, it was about, I think, 2.5% for low-income countries. So very hard to actually help people on a daily basis with a wage subsidy or cash. Um, But you got through it. Yes, uh, we got through it with a very few real direct uh, uh, COVID fatalities. There were few fatalities, but most of them, I would say more than 90% of the fatalities didn't owe it directly to COVID. We had people with long, uh, old uh, diabetes, years, people with cancer, uh, heart attacks, and uh, so on. So from actual COVID, that someone died of COVID, you can count number of our fingers. And and now, of course, we have a cost of living crisis. We have inflation. We have supply chain problems with uh, food uh, being blockaded in the Ukraine. How is Timor-Leste coping now with this supply chain crisis, given that food security is an issue in the country? This has had a tremendous impact, uh, particularly on the staple food. We are unfortunately still very dependent on imports like rice from Vietnam, particularly, but also some from Indonesia, from Thailand. We buy a lot of uh, most of the cooking oil is from Indonesia. And all of this uh, price went up exponentially several times, you know, mm. like five liter of cooking oil before the Ukraine war uh, cost about four US dollar. Now, uh, up to a few weeks ago, it cost like 13 to 14 dollars. Now it's a bit further down, but still double the original cost before. Uh, the war in Ukraine, and everything else. 
shipping uh, transportation, you know, maritime transportation containers, much, much more expensive before COVID and the Ukraine war. A shipping container from China to Timor-Leste, the container itself would cost around $4,000. Now it is at least $13,000 US dollars. Yeah, I mean, this is the problem, isn't it? That that food security, uh, not just because of COVID, but because of inflation, because of the war, is just becoming worse. So we're actually going backwards in terms of of people going hungry. Uh, and I know I noticed uh, during before COVID that in schools you gave school kids one free meal a day. Now that would have helped tremendously with malnutrition, with stunting. Was that a problem when you had to lock down that these kids well. didn't? A meal. <laughs> when we had a lockdown, uh, closing down the schools, hundreds of thousands of children who otherwise had uh, a meal a day, consists of rice, beans, vegetables. Well, they lost that because they had to go home, stay home with their families. But in addition to that, uh, of course, uh, we had the impact uh, from, let's say, farmers, poor farmers that produce vegetables, uh, roots, whether uh, in areas like Aileu, Mauvisi, or whatever, anywhere in the rural areas where our people produce uh, for the local markets, they would make a few dollars a day from selling vegetables, selling fruit, uh, cassava, uh, sweet potatoes, uh, whatever, or selling uh, livestock like chicken, pigs, in some instances, uh, a buffalo. Uh, all of that was uh, paralyzed. So tremendous impact on the rural, rural women, rural families. Mm. What would be your priority action for the world to take to release some food supplies. I mean, you talked at the UN General Assembly only um, recently that you were calling on uh, the blockade in the Ukraine to be uh, um, freed so that ships can continue to bring grain, for example. I mean, what, what would be a number one priority for you in terms of food security? Well, uh, one uh, is as an urgent matter for the international community that seemed to have a tens of billions of dollars at their disposal. International community, I mean, uh, I correct, I mean the OECD countries, particularly the G7 countries, the G20 countries, with the exception, obviously, of the developing countries who sit also in the G20. Uh, they are the ones who should put in a major humanitarian uh, effort consisting of tens of billions of dollars the figure maybe to be worked out by UN agencies uh, to deliver food around the world, starting with the more fragile states, the island states, the so-called LDCs, least developed countries, the highly indebted countries, countries that uh, have so much debt, that they cannot afford. They don't have a foreign currency to buy, to import. Mm -hmm. So uh, to deliver, I wouldn't say for free, but you know, at very uh, heavily subsidized price. If we are you know, delivering the food to markets in Timor-Leste or in uh, the fragile states, the so-called LDCs, in particular in Africa, then it should be uh, free. Then in developing countries with some income should be subsidized so that the cost of the rice is very um, uh, almost symbolic. Mm. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> because people are not just expecting handouts, they're expecting help and help doesn't mean necessarily handouts help meaning, you know, try to cushion uh, the enormous pressure impact on the war in Ukraine, the COVID uh, impact, because COVID has huge economic trade impact as well. 
So there's the short-term urgent need, and then looking long-term, country like Timor-Leste and its development, you've talked um, very eloquently about the importance for Timor of developing the greater sunrise gas fields. And the reserves could be up to 100 billion, I think I've heard you say, which is incredible. I mean, when you've got a country that's 80% dependent on subsistent agriculture, that would really change everything, wouldn't it? It would it would deal to poverty reduction. So. What do you say to those who tell Timor-Leste you shouldn't be um, uh, developing this gas reserve because of climate change? What do you say to them? I would tell them, uh, please talk to the US, talk to Russia, Saudi Arabia, to the European countries, to Australia, to do that. Because they've had decades and decades of using fossil fuel to use coal, uh, for their enrichment, uh, their industries, their locomotives, their uh, energy was all uh, fueled by non-renewable energy for a hundred years. So tell them it is time for them to stop. And because they have accumulated trillions of dollars in wealth through the decades and decades of using fossil fuel. And uh, they seem to be seriously worried about climate change. Then the best way to discourage countries like Timor-Leste not to uh, uh, use fossil fuel is not to tell us, well, now you starve. Uh, you must shut down all your oil and gas uh, potential and starve, uh, because we would starve. Mm. So instead of saying that, they could set up a, a global fund, let's say in the order of $100 billion. It doesn't have to be given to Timor-Leste in the lump sum, but could be, uh, so that we can then, yes, we comfortably, we invest these $100 billion in equities, in the sovereign bonds of our countries, invest in our education, infrastructure, in employment for the youth, etc., etc. that we could do uh, without uh, resorting to developing of the greater sunrise. So thinking and, about- uh, they, yeah, they, could meet, they could make Timor-Leste a great showcase of what truly is a green economy and a blue economy. Mm. And I think, and staying with the the theme of looking to the future as well, you've talked about diversifying the economy in Timor in order to develop, um, perhaps into tourism, even into creating Timor as a Timor Leste as a financial centre, a, a Singapore or a Hong Kong of the region. Um, how would that happen? What needs to happen for that to happen? Well, obviously. Uh, uh depends a lot on uh, a the development of our uh, human resources which we have been doing the last 20 years situation in terms of educated people much better than the 20 years ago obvious uh, infrastructures we have a better infrastructure than 20 years ago but still not enough we need connectivity which is starting we have a submarine cable, two submarine cables coming to Timor-Leste in the next two, three years. Fiber optic already being laid down. So we need to digitalize uh, our administration, all services in Timor, digitalize our economy, and uh, have a legislation, national legislation that uh, create confidence uh, for the investors, that the investors look at our legal system, our legislation that give assurance to investors that their investment in Timor is safe and with reasonable returns to them. We are working on that. You've mentioned, and I'm intrigued by this idea, you've actually called to uh, millionaires, billionaires in the global south to invest 
in Timor. So a kind of south to south development um, yeah. uh, call. That's really interesting. How would that change uh, the model of aid that we know, where you have the West giving aid to the South? Exactly. Well, it's it. My point was only to say nowadays, 2022, 21st century, the accumulation of health, wealth around the world shifted a lot. Yes, probably US still have a, the richest number of people, the richest billionaires in terms of per capita. But there are also a lot in the developing world, from Latin America to Africa to Asia. In Asia alone, I believe there is more liquidity, not uh, fake money, not paper money, uh, real liquidity in Asia from incredibly wealthy uh, corporations, uh, uh, Asian corporations, incredibly wealthy banks, family foundations, families, individuals, uh, they are millions of them. The same in Africa. There are a lot of billionaires in Africa now, a lot of billionaires in uh, Latin America. Well, instead of we keep criticizing the West, always expecting the West to uh, put down the money for developing the third world, instead of keep criticizing the failures of ODA of the last 50 years, because there has been failures of the ODA. If ODA had been truly ODA to really deliver the money, development to communities, well, today there have been much less poverty around the world. Something went wrong with ODA that uh, 50 years later of ODA, uh, we still have uh, so much poverty in the world. So let's do something. Uh, this south, uh, south South solidarity to which the North also would contribute. A movement, an action led by the Secretary General of the UN, co-chaired with the World Bank and uh, some of the big CEOs of Asia, Africa, and Latin America. They have to be part of it. Cannot be always the Wesley. It's a fascinating idea. Um, <laughs> and it's the kind of idea that really, um, I think, changes the, mod changes the whole beneficiary model, the welfare model of aid and ODA. Um, yeah. mm -hmm. And one thing, I mean, we'll come to this in a minute, but because I wanted to ask you a question about your relationship with um, China, which is also very interesting, I think. Um, well, maybe I'll come to that now. Um, your relationship with China is, is slightly different to other countries in the region. I, I, you don't have debt with China. You don't have loans with China, do you? So you have had, China has invested in your infrastructure. It's invested in, I think, the port, but you don't have loans. So tell me about the different relationship that you have with China. Well, it's a very normal, good relationship. Nothing uh, extraordinary about it. Uh, we have a much more day-to-day -day engagement with Australia, with Indonesia, with the U.S. than with China. Uh, U.S. assistance, more or less, is far greater than uh, uh, China's uh, development assistance. Australia assistance, more or less, maybe is, is ten times of the of China. Portugal far away, but still very present in Timor Leste. New Zealand. Japan, Republic of Korea. So uh, China is one important uh, friend of Timor-Leste. Uh, but uh, uh, we, we, we never uh, thought of uh, borrowing money from uh, China. Prim primary lenders to Timor-Leste and uh, very small compared to our GDP, to our national yearly budget is pr primarily Asian Development Bank and uh, the International Financial uh, Corporation, IFC, mm -hmm. which is an investment uh, bank of the World Bank. 
so that's all we have. Very and uh, and none of none of these loans for paying salaries, for running costs of the administration, or for our army or police. All of these loans have been borrowed for our infrastructure development, roads, bridges, uh, our. Uh, uh, major modern uh, uh, international harbor port, which is ready. Uh, and that was made out, uh, negotiated with uh, three partners. Well, ourselves, Bolloré, a big French company, which is part of the consortium, and the uh, IFC. Uh, yes, a big giant Chinese company won the contract to do the physical work. But uh, they are a contracted party. They are not like we don't have any loan or grant, least of all grant from China, for the, the Dili uh, uh, Tiber port. So, uh, uh, and many of the Chinese companies operating in Timor Leste, they are here not because of a grant from China. No, they are here because they compete in the open international bid, which our law obliges us, obligate us to do. So companies from Indonesia, Australia, Japan, Korea, uh, so China, they compete in the bid. And they, often the Chinese win because uh, they provide cheaper uh, cost. Mm. Let's talk about plans, because the theme of this conference is some of the big global plans like the Sustainable Development Goals, as well as the country plans. So I know Timor has its strategic development plan. Um, so talking about the SDGs, we, we are not on track to achieve the SDGs. We're, we're halfway through. What does the world do? What would you recommend the world do? Focus on fewer targets or um, I don't know, how do we how do we move forward from this place? Well, uh, over the years, uh, I was not involved in the debates in New York at the UN in the development of all these goals. We started with MDGs, Millennium uh, Development Goals, uh, which supposed to be accomplished by 2015. And then we, the UN came up with a new SDGs. Uh, looking from, from the sidelines, I was skeptical and uh, I'm a very practical person and realistic, understand the limitations in each country and uh, the complications of uh, mobilizing uh, the trillions of dollars uh, for uh, the global uh, economy. So I would have suggested that we had been more focused uh, rather than having all the dozens and dozens of goals. I don't know how many of them, uh, almost like uh, more than a, a Chinese restaurant menu, uh, more than a, a shopping list going to the supermarket, uh, or like a Christmas tree. And uh, I would have focused maybe maximum 10. And uh, that will address the problems, particularly in developing countries. Clean water. Focus on clean water. Focus on irrigation systems for agriculture and so on. Focus, yes, on environment, planting new trees. Mm. Education, particularly early childhood education and elementary uh, primary education. The rest, uh, leave it to the country concern. Mm. Focus on technical and vocational training. Uh, obviously, health systems, you know, so that each country has a reasonably functional medical system, health system, and well supply with stock, uh, with people, trained nurses paramedics and uh, health workers, uh, build rural roads. Yeah, I've had... I've had so uh, this would be, I would have a focus on, on that. 
And yeah. of course, all of these mean uh, equality. Uh, never leave out women. Half of the world population, half of each country population. Uh, never leave out children. You know, um, I say focus on uh, stunt uh, problems uh, on pregnant mothers. You know, throughout her pregnancy, uh, she must be assisted by doctors to check on the health, must have access to clean water, nutrition, food, uh, fruit, vegetables, <laughs> things like that. That easily, then they can purchase locally uh, the money that given by the international community for these programs. Well, rather than uh, bringing uh, rice or wheat or whatever donated from the West, no, donated or bought uh, from the West, no, use the donor money to buy locally. Then you'll see women producing more for their own consumption, for market consumption. I found that, and I think many of us have experienced this post-COVID, that the voice from developing partners has become much more assertive, much clearer. Uh, I, I'm thinking of Prime Minister Fiamme of Samoa, who says, returning to the old models of aid, business as usual will not be acceptable. And one of the things that we've heard as a priority is digital connectivity. You mentioned the, the submarine cables going in in, in Timor-Leste. Digital connectivity is a tool to, you know, health support, education at home, um, uh, financial jobs. If you can get jobs online, you're not dependent uh, on, on um, other jobs as well. So digital connectivity is one of those things I think that's really important. Would you agree? Absolutely. And we are now, we have uh, at least two submarine cables coming to Timor-Leste soon, one from Australia. Port Hedland, one from Alor, Indonesian island next to Timor-Leste. Uh, one system, uh, fiber optic already coming from Matambua, West Timor to our border. So soon we'll have a three or an additional fourth submarine cable connecting Timor-Leste. That, yes, will help <clears throat> tremendously education will help tremendously women in the rural areas uh, to advertise, to market, to make payments, and uh, also for health. Diagnosis can be done with doctors in Australia or whatever, you know, with doctors here. <clears throat> so talking about the strategic plan for Timor, it's, I think it's 2011 to 2030, if I remember. It's a long time, isn't it? And I think you have said these, these country plans are not Bibles. They, they need to be updated constantly. Yeah. So what would be your priority in updating the, the Timorese um, strategic plan now? Things that uh, areas in which we failed the last 20 years, we have to rethink and do better. 20 years after independence, with so much uh, uh, so-called development aid that was supposedly allocated to Timor-Leste, plus our own petroleum fund, petroleum revenues, Timor-Leste cannot complain of not having uh, funding. And yet we have a very high child uh, malnutrition stunt uh, high poverty, extreme poverty, that is unacceptable. So we have to review. This has to be reprioritized to be number one, including for our friends, donors, to focus on eliminating stunt child poverty, uh, mother's health in Timor-Leste. And, but many things are associated with that. It's not only like, well, let's give more food to the mother. No, clean water, you know, that's very important. Uh, bacterias, you know, in the water, you know, uh, uh, dengue in the communities, uh, TB, tuberculosis. Uh, so public health issues are absolute priority, must go hand in hand with uh, child nutrition, food security, 
through investment, better investment in agriculture, investment in uh, 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 natural fertilizers for the communities instead of uh, you know chemical fertilizers. Mm. Couple more questions before we finish. Um, I'm curious to get your view of the state of the United Nations and multilateral organizations. And I know um, that it took far too long for the international community to help uh, Timor-Leste in its hour of need. Uh, the UN has been found wanting in Ukraine. It's been hard to get past the veto, hasn't it? How do you how do we reform these multilateral organizations? How do we make them better for the future? Well, uh, I don't. Uh, You've got the answer. That would be great. <laughs> I don't think there is uh, any answer to that because which countries create these problems like uh, Ukraine or the war in Yemen, uh, in Syria? and uh, Afghanistan and South Sudan. Of course, in some regions of the world, in some conflicts, we cannot simply be hypocritical, unfair, and always blame the West. And blame the United States, blame the UK, France, or Australia. No. Many in the third world, leadership in the third world, developing countries, have to live up to our own responsibility. But you ask about the UN, about, well, the UN is made up of 193 or 94 member states. And a small country like Timor-Leste and uh, others, we never invaded any big country. Uh, we never engaged a war with any other country. The same happened with the Caribbean countries. The Central American countries during the Cold War, they were pawns of Soviet Union to some extent, but it was also internal. Uh, but there was also uh, American involvement. Uh, but they, they didn't invade their neighbor. You know, uh, there are civil war in El Salvador, civil war in Guatemala, uh, war in, uh, literal war in Honduras, but that's crime, uh, you know, organized crime, gangs and so on. So we go back to the permanent members of Security Council and other major powers that are not permanent members. We can expand the membership of Security Council, as President Biden just talked about, as many have talked before him, increase the numbers of non-permanent members to better reflect the number of countries existing today, increase the number of permanent members, so that not only the five from the post-World War II era, is that going to resolve the problem? No. You have, a, let's say, India in the, as permanent member of the Security Council. Uh, well, will India work together with China in the, as permanent member? Uh, will uh, India suddenly resolve its problems with Pakistan? And uh, by increasing permanent membership, you know, from five to 10 or 20, suddenly we are going to see Russia, China, and the US behaving. No, it's all to do with human beings, with leaders. Uh, the COVID showed some uh, international solidarity, some uh, was a very good test in the medical field. It worked fast, but it was fast because COVID entered the White House, entered 10 Downing Street. Macron of France also got it. So malaria, dengue, malaria and dengue, tropical diseases for centuries. We haven't found a vaccine or cure to eliminate uh, dengue. We already eliminate malaria in Timor-Leste. Mm. Uh, thanks to uh, international help and our own policies. So uh, there is, I would be, uh, how you say, imprudent and uh, false uh, to uh, say solutions is this. No, I don't know better than many other people have written about it. The problem is this. 
world leadership, national leadership, where uh, uh, we have a fail. And not the small countries, uh, the big powers. I know that you're um, part of a group, it's called the Global Leadership Foundation, I think, where you mentor uh, leaders in countries uh, to promote democracy, promote good governance, or promote democratic processes anyway, and good governance, conflict resolution, and so on. So that's an amazing thing to do. Um, it, you know, how, how important is that mentoring of leaders in different countries? Well, uh, I have no pretense to mentor any leader outside Timor-Leste. I try to help Timorese leaders over the last 20 years. I watch, I observe different leaders as they grow in age and uh, politically speaking, intellectually. Uh, That is a collective uh, effort. Today, if we look at our government, almost 100% of the people are 10, 20 years younger than me. Our judiciary justice sector there is not one single person there who belongs to my generation. We go to the parliament again, everyone there belongs to the post-91 generation, uh, do not belong to our leader's generation. And we go to the central bank, the minister of finance, many technocrats there, all of them, new generation, with PhDs, master's degrees, perfect English, and other languages. That's what we do. Yeah. So how important is it it to create space for civil society in that process too? Because this has been something that is a problem in some Pacific countries we know where that civil society space is shrinking. So how do you promote the voice of civil society in your government, in your processes? Well, uh, Timor-Leste is a very vibrant democracy. We are imperfect, like most democracies are imperfect, but it's very dynamic, super active, uh, absolutely imperfect. Yes, that, that that's true. Perfect democracies would be New Zealand, would be Norway, Finland, uh, uh, Sweden to some extent. Uh, that's about it. When you descend from the Nordics down to the more warmer Mediterranean Europe, and then uh, <laughs> <laughs> perfect, perfect democracy. Yeah. yeah, climate makes a difference. Yeah, so uh, I have no illusions about about that. Uh, and uh, but um, so we have absolutely free media. We rank number seventeen in the world, above many Western countries. Uh, number one democracy in Southeast Asia. Uh, so, uh, but it's imperfect uh, because democracy to be perfect is very simple uh, criteria from me. One, there is never political violence, no political, uh, you know, violence because of politics, no violence or no death killing because of uh, elections or whatever. That's number one criteria. Number two criteria. Democracy is when no pressure, no blackmail, no threats on free media, on civil society, on anyone. Let them talk uh, freely. Uh, Of course, with responsibility. There are laws that uh, would punish people who then uh, talk irresponsibly, like you foment racial hatred or religious hatred or whatever. That is a crime. Uh, but to espouse someone's ideas about alternative governments, alternative thinking on economics and politics, whatever, absolutely free. Then uh, last is uh, last point is uh, that everyone, anyone, uh, no one can be excluded, and that means no discrimination on LGBT, on ethnic uh, national minorities. Uh, religious minorities, uh, people with uh, uh, who have a certain handicap. Uh, I prefer to co- use the expression, people with special needs. Uh, 
rather than a handicap or whatever. People with special needs, special needs to enter a building. Uh, they need a ramp. Uh, uh, they need a Braille uh, characters to press the elevator, uh, toilet facilities, and the special schools, uh, easy access to schools, privileged access to schools for people with special needs. That, yes, would be, and uh, democracy deliver, deliver to the poor, deliver in economics, because... Think, yeah, yeah. That, that's absolutely right. And, and I've, I've heard you say before that one of the great things that's happened in the last 20 years in Timor-Leste is that crime has dropped, that organized crime doesn't exist. I think you said in jest, uh, we're a disorganized country, so of course our, our crime isn't going to be organized either, uh, which is very funny. But um, I, why is that? Because that's amazing. In 20 years, in your democracy, you've managed to reduce crime to such an extent. Yeah, we do. We do have it still, but... Uh... Uh, we don't have really organized crime in the sense of uh, organized crime that we know, I know, in Asia, in Europe, in the United States, in China, and so on. No. We have a lot of petty crime, you know, um, a lot, again, relatively speaking. Uh, we do what the threat that Timber face is organized crime from outside. Mm -hmm. Being a fragile country, not yet very, very uh, efficient in our intelligence service, police uh, services, in our investigation capabilities, our tracking of uh, uh, crime, uh, crime and so on. Yes, we are uh, vulnerable to organized crime coming from our region uh, and from, from uh, elsewhere. So. But yeah. homegrown organized crime, no, doesn't exist. It's interesting that you're looking at joining, you will be joining ASEAN next year. Uh, this tells me as well that perhaps regional organizations are actually being more effective at the moment than some of our international multilateral organizations. So ASEAN, uh, when you join ASEAN, there'll be benefits. What will the benefits be for, for Timor joining ASEAN? The benefits are many. One, we will be part of a market of almost 700 million people. We will be part of an economy of over $4 trillion, which is not huge, but it's still a lot. Because I know some companies in the world, they have a, they manage $9 trillion economy, uh, $9 trillion funds, and things like that. So, uh, but it's $4 trillion economy, the combined GDP. Uh, it, that doesn't include, of course, the, uh, uh, the cash reserves among ASEAN countries. That's uh, big. Uh, Singapore alone uh, has trillions of dollars. Uh, I talk about the gross national uh, product. Uh, we will be part of that, and that will be an, a very attractive for investors from other countries to come invest in Timor-Leste for the 700 million market that we have. It brings responsibility, brings responsibility in the sense we are part of an organization. We cannot freelance. We cannot take independent positions disregarding sensitivities, regarding uh, traditions or uh, precedents or uh, uh, concerns of our uh, neighbors. Mm. There is a tradition, a habit of looking for consensus in ASEAN. But already few times, ASEAN countries did not reach consensus. So when they don't reach consensus, if I'm a, a member of ASEAN, uh, I would try to help building the bridges so that ASEAN uh, reach consensus on any sensitive issue. That's how I would do. I would work, uh, try to help uh, bridging any difference, any gaps among ASEAN countries. We, ASEAN, has to be extremely careful not to fall, to become a pawn in the South China dispute, for instance. 
not become a pawn in the US-China rivalry. Uh, ASEAN can be a very important bridge mediator in the rivalry between China and the United States. Uh, because if there is any uh, exacerbation of the tension in South China Sea, uh, immediate uh, impact will be on the ASEAN countries' economies, lives, and so on. Uh, so that's how I see our membership in ASEAN. Mm, I do think these regional organisations uh, are in a unique position at the moment in the world because yeah. they can they can step up and show some leadership in some difficult areas. One of which, of course, is Myanmar, and um, you've spoken eloquently about the situation in Myanmar. I've got one final um, question, really, to, to all the aid agencies, the the Council for International Development members, the the aid. Um, agencies working in New Zealand and as well as our government as well. You wrote a book at once called The Words of Hope in Troubled Times, which is a great title. So I'm asking you now, do you have any words of hope for us now, particularly in the New Zealand aid sector? What are your words of hope to us? Well, first, you have a, a great leader, Jacinda. I met in New York a few weeks ago. What a wonderful uh, person. I brought into the UN my grandson. He's six years old. I rarely see him. And uh, because he lives with his mother in New York, his mother works at the UN. And uh, uh, Jacinda and my grandson, his name is Virus, Verus, uh, they held the conversation. I was almost uh, uh, pushed aside. <laughs> and uh, Jacinda was such a great motherly person. I had never met before, just watched on television. Uh, and as you know, she has great uh, international uh, standing because of the mm -hmm. policies in the country. Having said that, uh, uh, on, Timor has had only good experience with New Zealand, both government and people. And the same happened with Australia. Great people, uh, great NGOs, uh, civil society. Uh, so I do not have, a, uh, you know, I do not have enough words to think. In terms of uh, uh, what next, uh, I say, well, the world as it is, uh, upside down, uh, leaderless, literally, uh, without any truly inspiring leader on the global stage in terms of uh, major powers that make a difference. Well, small countries like New Zealand, uh, working with other like-minded countries, maybe in the third world with uh, uh, Norway, uh, with Costa Rica, uh, with Timor-Leste, maybe we can uh, mobilize, gather world opinion uh, to get uh, our respective uh, regions, countries to uh, uh, be more, uh, to show more uh, compassion and wisdom in dealing with global affairs. Mm. Uh, we cannot make miracles to resolve Ukraine. Syria has been going on for more than 10 years. People have been dying in Yemen, no end in sight. Mm. Uh, and what can we do? Absolute priority that New Zealanders can do, NGOs, civil society. In these circumstances, absolute priority is to feed those who are hungry. Uh, to treat those who are wounded, provide clean water to those who are thirsty. Because this is the reality of uh, the daily lives in Afghanistan. And I'm not being romantic or making a poetic speech. Uh, people simply don't even have a clean water to drink. They don't have a, a rice bowl, a bowl of rice uh, uh, a day, at least a day. I have read that in Afghanistan, uh, some people, some families, they eat only every two days, every three days. 
And the UN, for all its uh, criticism that have been leveled against the UN and other international institutions, well, they're the only ones uh, in Afghanistan, WFP, in Afghanistan, in Syria, Yemen, in Ukraine, in North Korea, delivering food. Mm. And then we hope the war ends and the NGOs can then step in to help rebuild, not necessarily rebuild infrastructure, but helping rebuild rural economies, small businesses, rebuild the schools, uh, get clean water to communities, early childhood education. It's a lot. <laughs> yeah. But that's a lovely way to end, that a coalition of compassionate, pragmatic leaders and, and civil society is what we need. So I think that's a fantastic place to, to lead. Because it. this coalition, this coalition can help mobilizing the my idea that I mentioned, the global south, the rich families, the rich companies, banks, the rich universities of the third world. Mm. Uh, because today they have money, we have money, trillions of dollars in the third world. It would be great for Asia to take leadership on this. Uh, New Zealand, someone like uh, a country like New Zealand, Jacinda, uh, could be uh, someone who inspired the rest of these small, mid-sized countries, uh, big countries in the South to do something like that. You're right. We have enough food to feed people. We have enough money to pay for all of this in the world. It's the it's the political will, uh, the ability to distribute the practical mechanisms, the tools, um, and the compassion and political will to do it. So thank you, thank you for your leadership in these global thank issues, you. Mr. President, and also, of course, for your leadership of uh, Timor-Leste, a country that is very dear to our hearts in New Zealand, Aotearoa. Uh, and thank you for joining us. Thank you, all of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Useful Outsiders. Please subscribe, share, rate and review and help us to spread the word. We'd love to hear from you, so if you have any feedback or ideas for future episodes, please get in touch. You can find our email in the episode notes. We hope you'll join us for the next episode.